seated. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out tonight to Culture and Theology. Uh, this, I think, is our sixth edition of this. We started it about uh, two or three years ago. It's uh, part of our educational ministry. Fits under that heading and culture and theology. So we have split the topics evenly between issues that relate to culture and uh, issues particularly of controversy or conflict or challenging issues to think through uh, related between church and culture or theological issues, issues that we felt we needed to go a little deeper theologically. This provided us a forum to do that. So past topics, for example, have included uh, end times, uh, eschatology. We spent an evening on the refugee crisis. We spent an evening on discussing the supernatural, spiritual gifts. We spent an evening discussing homosexuality and particularly the development of gay theology and uh, the Bible's response to that. We had a morning, a morning uh, culture and theology called Why, Why Pro-Life? And so that was this past fall. So this is our sixth, and uh, tonight's on the issue of politics. So um, I don't, neither of us relish doing this. <laughs> we didn't wake up and uh, say, hey, let's talk about politics. But um, uh, it's a little bit of a combination of some confusion around the 2018 midterms, realizing there was some uh, missed expectations in terms of what people expected from us versus what we were giving. Also, some conflict within the church uh, in the clash of political views and their, again, relationship, their overlap with the scripture. And then also with just the highly politicized culture with things really ramping up in the 2020 election, we wanted to get ahead and, uh, of the issue. Um, and tonight what we'll talk about is really a few things. We'll talk about what we believe to be the church's role, uh, what we believe to be the church's responsibility, uh, how to preserve our unity as a church. Uh, so those will be the themes that will really uh, uh, describe our time, explain our time. Um, actually, that explains my time. Let me introduce Nick's time. What Nick is going to do is very interesting and something that I think, again, educationally is going to be very new for you. And that is Nick is going to give us a background and a history, a church history, of the different ways the church has related to culture and to politics throughout history. We live in a very unique moment. And it's easy to think that our moment, that all moments have been like ours. And, uh, but it's helpful, we think, to get a background, a canvas upon which to understand our particular historical, cultural, political moment. And some church history will help us discern and understand our moment a little more effectively. So I'm going to pray. Nick's going to start. Uh, Nick's time will, again, we're hoping to include Q&A in both sessions. Nick will stop around 5 tilly. We'll take a five-minute break, reconvene at 8, and again, we look to go to 9 tonight. So let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to uh, be with us and to reveal Jesus to us in very profound and unique ways this evening. 
Father, even though tonight is heavy on education and on learning, uh, asking and perhaps stretching our minds to think, Father, we do not want that to prevent us from experiencing your presence here with us this evening. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is the agency through which we experience the life of God in us. And Father, we want as individuals, as families, as a church, we want to have the life, Father, your life in us, working through us. Father, tonight we want to learn how to walk through these challenging times and we want to be the embodiment of the kingdom of God such that we can attract, <clears throat> Lord, our world and be salt to our world. Make our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers thirsty for the reality of Jesus. That's our prayer for tonight. Bless our time and unite us. Help us to love one another. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. For some reason, the um, the verse that comes to mind is something about sheep being led to slaughter uh, as we embark on this tonight, but uh, at least for Chris and I. Um, no. As Chris said, I, in one sense, I have the easier side of tonight, uh, and that is presenting uh, some historical views of the church and politics, uh, although with the accusation of revisionist history floating around in all areas of uh, life, maybe I don't, so we'll see. But um, as we think about uh, when it comes to church and politics and how the two should interact and how both individual Christians and churches should think about politics, there are probably an endless number of views and opinions. Uh, but tonight, for my portion, I'm just going to walk us through five different uh, historical views on the church and politics. And as we think about these five views, they represent groups of Christians who have carefully thought through and developed a systematic approach to politics and to political engagement. And they do it from, uh, they each approach it from a communal view, meaning this is how the community of believers should approach politics rather than viewing politics as an individual conviction. Um, these five views have a long, uh, they have the longest history of engaging politics in a certain way, and some of them have been doing it for decades, others have been doing it literally for hundreds of years in the Western world. Now in terms of sources, or uh, I've been joking, it feels like I've been cramming for a test all week, and so I'm by no means an expert on this, this topic, but in terms of resources and where, uh, what I'll be presenting, um, really it all comes from uh, this book here, and uh, it has a very interesting title, uh, wait for it. Uh, Five Views of the Church and Politics, so uh, very original, but uh, this book is part of uh, a series of books called Counterpoints, and sort of the way that these counterpoints are designed is that um, you, it's typically around something a little more controversial, around something that within the church there are, are multiple different views, and so each uh, contributor uh, of that view will present their view, and then the other four contributors will interact and sort of counter counter it or critique it. And so uh, the thing that I like about uh, this book and about this series of books is that you really get to see the strengths and the weaknesses of each view. 
um, because they're interacting with each other's work. Um, now, before we get into these five views, I just want to say something up front. And I, I want to say this because it applies to these views, and that'll become evident as I walk through them. But I think it also applies to you and I as well. And that is this. Whether we realize it or not, we are all deeply influenced and shaped by when we were born, where we were born, where we were educated, the books that we have read, and also the people that we have listened to and spent time with. And you see, I think a lot of us, maybe without realizing it, we think that we hold the views and the positions that we do because in some unbiased way, we have thought through all of the issues and we've arrived at our position through our own intellect or whatever. I just don't think that that's true. I think that the reality is, is that all of us have been deeply shaped and influenced by things outside of us, and sometimes those things were outside of our own control. And so I think in humility, we have to be upfront about that, and I think that we have to acknowledge that that's true. And again, as we walk through these five views, it's gonna be easy to see how history and location and opportunities influenced how each of these groups landed where they did in terms of how to engage politics as a community of believers. Now, in terms of these five views we're going to look at, um, you can kind of picture them on a scale or a continuum going from those that are most opposed to church and state engagement to those that are most in favor or most open to church and state engagement. So again, it's sort of a continuum here. And so on one far end of the continuum, we have, this will be the first view, the Anabaptist view, or what some have called the separationist view. Now, the Anabaptist tradition arose in the 16th century in Switzerland, and one of the things that might uh, make this confusing for some of you, <coughs> maybe not, um, is that many modern Baptist groups are from a different movement than the Anabaptist tradition. You see, many modern Baptists have their roots uh, not in uh, Switzerland or in 16th century, but rather in, in 17th century English Puritanism or separatism. Now, to be fair, the, the earlier Anabaptist tradition certainly influenced modern Baptist churches, certainly in the area of baptism, for example, but, but other areas as well. And it's important to, to, to understand that, but to remember, they are still very distinct movements. Now, in terms of Anabaptist history, in the 1500s, a group of uh, radical reformers, the most famous of which was a guy named uh, Minio Simmons, he and others spoke out against infant baptism uh, theology that was, again, the standard default theology of the time. And instead, they began to teach that baptism was reserved for adult believers. Now, in doing that, in teaching it, that, uh, that theology from the scriptures, they found themselves increasingly under scrutiny and persecution. I mean, they, they were considered heretics in the church, and because of that, uh, they began to endure intense suffering, including execution and death. Now, as a result, uh, much of Anabaptist teaching focused on the role of the community, both for personal preservation and the proclamation of the gospel. And as part of that, really, this serves as the foundation for a lot of Anabaptist thought and theology, is they would argue that the gospel is best exemplified in the person, life, and teachings of Jesus, and is expressed most fully in the Sermon on the Mount. And with that, they would argue that, and would emphasize that Jesus uh, taught very clearly that we ought to prioritize forgiveness and extend grace, even and especially to the point of turning the other cheek. And especially when persecuted. And that they would say, we're not only to just pray for our enemies, but we are to actually love 
our enemies. And they would say that Jesus personified this ethic by uh, rejecting, number one, by rejecting the violent tendencies of the zealots of his day. But also, you see it in Jesus' life as he refused to give a defense or to make a resistance even at his own trial and death. And that Jesus, rather than fighting back or, or moving to violence, he rather willingly gave up his life as a ransom for many. Now, because of this compelling example in Christ, Anabaptists take a posture of nonviolence. In other words, Anabaptists do not endorse the use of lethal force or coercion in any circumstance, be it by the hands of an individual or even by the hands of the state. This extends even to the rejection of violence, even for self-defense. And, and maybe for some of you, that, that, that sounds really hard to understand or to accept. And, and Anabaptists understand, and they're honest about the fact that this pacifist type of approach can lead to a life of suffering and pain. Before them, that's okay. Um, as one Anabaptist theologian, Werner uh, Packel, has stated, for Anabaptists, non-resistance was not a calculated survival strategy, but a principle of Christian life and conduct, an assumed non-political kingdom ethic revealed by Christ. They would argue that much of what the state does in defense of its citizenry or in punishment of those who violate the laws, it's tainted by violence. And as such, Anabaptists have an uneasy relationship with politics. You, are you tracking with that? Because they would say the state often has to use violence in order to uh, you know, defend its citizens or in order to punish those who break laws, that because of that, they would be opposed to participating um, or they have an uneasy relationship with politics. It's not that they're opposed to participating in the good that the state does. It's just that a close affiliation with the state may result in a believer having to engage in activities, particularly violent activities, which go against Anabaptist belief and tradition. So Anabaptist political uh, thought then strongly affirms that the church should lead the way in modeling the actions of Jesus. What that means is that this then leads many of them to separate from the work of the state because of its frequent coercive power and non-Christ-like behavior. And so practically what this could look like is this means Christians abstaining from government, uh, things like serving in the military, running for public office, taking public oaths, and for the most part abstaining from voting in elections. Now, one of the things you have to understand is I talked through all five of these views tonight, I'm, I, and this is certainly true here of the Anabaptists. Um, I'm looking at Daryl here, wondering if he's like, going to correct anything I've said, and feel free to jump in, Daryl. Um, one of the things about all of these views that I want to say is that I'm sharing with you characteristics of these views. In other words, I'm sharing you, with you stereotypes, and I mean that in a positive sense, not in a, not in a negative sense. But even within each of these views, there's a spectrum of thought and practice. And so, you know, again, not every Anabaptist would maybe adhere to or, or practice it exactly the way that I have just laid out. Again, these are, in general, these are characteristics of these traditions. For example, some Anabaptists might make concessions for some form of political involvement. But in doing so, uh, they expect that Christian presuppositions will shape all political interactions, and that believers will oppose violence in every form. They realize that this stance is unlikely to lead to political success, and they grapple with the fact that nonviolence will entail greater opposition. 
But through all of these actions, they point to the witness of Jesus who suffered and who calls his followers to do the same. You see, instead of, uh, for the Anabaptists, instead of looking to the government as an agent of change, Anabaptist thought emphasizes the centrality of the church and her call to serve as an alternative community that embodies the truths of the gospel. And they would say that, that the church should not seek to influence the broad social and political realms as much as it should be a distinct social ethic that prefigures the kingdom of God and all of its Christ-like particularities. Therefore, in their minds, the church simply cannot engage in politics or in violence on the world's terms. In other words, they're saying we're not going to get sucked into this system that, that's sort of being put out by the world. Love of God and love of neighbor must permeate every Christian and church in every context. And to do that, it requires a countercultural voice and a unified community that lives in light of Jesus's radical commands. Now, as I said at the beginning, all of these views are influenced by their history. Things like when they arose, where they arose from. And that's certainly true of the Anabaptist tradition. I mean, they were persecuted by other Christians because those other Christians, uh, because those other Christians were integrated with the state. Those churches could have the state put these fellow believers to death. And so think about that. Think about how that might shape or influence your understanding and your view of how the church should engage with the state and with politics. Now, when we think of Anabaptists, you most likely are picturing groups uh, like the Amish or Mennonites or uh, Hutterites or some brethren groups, and that's certainly true. Um, those groups are, by and large, from the Anabaptist tradition. But uh, believe it or not, there is a growing number of evangelicals who are starting to embrace and argue for the Anabaptist position, particularly when it comes to nonviolence and political engagement, not so much the withdrawal from society and, and all of that as is displayed in the, uh, in the Amish. Now, from what I can tell, this view is growing, and it's particularly growing among young adults who are perhaps reacting to how they have seen older generations of Christians engage in politics, and they're not wanting to go down that same path. Um, I think per perhaps maybe... Maybe this is the same thing, maybe it's not, but I think it's also growing in the last several years because many would feel like neither the Republican Party or the Democratic Party uh, represents a Christian ethic and practice, and therefore, one of the ways that you protest these groups is by not voting and by abstaining from the political process. Now, keep in mind here, again, there's always nuances and ranges on the spectrum, but in general, this is the Anabaptist or separationist view of political engagement. Now, if we started to move down that continuum, one click over from the Anabaptist view is the Lutheran view, or what some have called the paradoxical view. Now, the Lutheran tradition largely, uh, but not exclusively, comes to us from the teachings of Martin Luther. Some of the essential elements of Lutheranism in general are justification by faith alone, of course, uh, the reality of human sinfulness or human depravity, um, the significance of scripture and the sacraments, now, in terms of politics, this next one's a big one, and they have a whole theology of the two kingdoms doctrine, um, and then also another big emphasis is human uh, vocation. Now, in general, Lutherans believe that God has chosen to rule earthly kingdoms through laws and principles that can be rightly rele relegated or yeah relegated through the state. 
They would say that the state can affect change within society, but it cannot redeem sinful hearts. And that no amount of human effort can ever do that. In other words, they would say that the state can and should affect people's outward behavior and, and outward responses. But we have to remember, they would say, that the state cannot change a person's heart. Only Jesus and the gospel can do that. And because of that, they would say there, it's important for us to understand that because there is great danger in conflating these two systems, these two kingdoms. You see, for them, they say we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And they would caution us that if we're not careful, people can wrongly look to the law as a means of salvation and they can turn God, God's love into an earthly ethical norm. You see, Lutherans would argue that their view of government and they would argue their view of government and politics by pointing out that sin entered the world at the fall, with the result being that, that all people have sinned, and that the state or that government was brought in in part because of the effects of the fall. And so it's a little bit of a negative view of the state and government. They would say, we only have this institution because of the fall. Now, according to Lutheran tradition, one of the functions of the state is the God-ordained purpose of protecting its citizenry, seeking justice, and resisting and restraining evil. Therefore, unlike the Anabaptists, they would concede that what this means is that at times the state may have legitimate reason to use force, including violent force. It further means that Christians can participate in governmental functions because the state is a means by which God governs this fallen world. You see, helping the state effectively punish wickedness and pursue justice is a way, they would say, that followers of Jesus can fulfill their call to love their neighbors. In other words, a, a Lutheran would argue that, that one of the ways you could love your neighbors is by being a, a police officer, right? Like you are there to restrain evil, to, to punish wickedness. Um, and so they would be okay with that, unlike perhaps the Anabaptists. And all of this, a key to understanding how Lutherans understand government um, and is to understand sort of the, in one sense, the negative view that they have of it. I don't know if they would use these words, but it's, it's as if they view government as a necessary evil. Again, they would say government is a result of the fall and that its primary purpose is to protect its citizens by restraining evil. Now, with that said, Lutherans would still be very quick to point out that the church stands apart from all of this. They would say that the church is called to maintain its focus not on the temporal and limited power of social or cultural transformation, but rather the gospel of redemption proclaimed through the word and through administering the sacraments. And they would say that our ultimate hope should be found in this, in the church, in Jesus. And because of this, the Lutheran church often refrains from direct involvement in politics, instead uh, choosing to focus upon instructing believers and shaping people to <coughs> love God and to love their neighbors well. In fact, uh, in this book, one of the, the guy who wrote for the Lutheran view, he said, undue entanglement in politics can be the ruination of the church. The power and presence of Christ within a believer will influence and guide their activities and actions in their workplaces and in society wherever they go. No state realm can uh, escape the influence of the gospel on the lives of Christians marked by the church. You see, again, I... This is the view I feel the least comfortable presenting because it's a little hard to grasp. But, but really, one of the keys 
to it is this two kingdoms or two governments doctrine and, and the way that they understand this. And here's how Martin Luther tried to explain it. He says, God has ordained the two governments, the spiritual, which by the Holy Spirit under Christ makes Christians and pious people, and the secular, which restrains the unchristian and wicked so that they are obliged to keep peace outwardly. The laws of worldly government extend no farther than to life and property and what is external upon the earth. For over the soul, God can and will let no one rule but himself. Therefore, where temporal power presumes to prescribe laws for the soul, it encroaches upon God's government and only misleads and destroys souls. We desire to make this so clear that everyone shall grasp it and that the princes and bishops may see what fools they are when they seek to coerce the people with their laws and commandments into believing one thing or another. And so again, it's a very strong like you have the church and you have government and the two shall not meet, right? Another Lutheran theologian, again, the guy who wrote for this book, he said the universality of the gospel is compromised if we fail to make a sharp distinction between God's saving act in Christ and all human efforts at improving the world. So again, there's a call to separation here. I'm being clear. What is the government's role? What is the church's role? Now, one final aspect that plays into this a little bit is the Lutheran's doctrine of vocation. You see, the Lutheran view of vocation places importance on any occupation, activity, or sphere of life. They would argue that there are some Christians who are called to share the church's social concerns with the world and to translate those concern, the concerns of God's word, word into arguments that are appropriate for civil government. In other words, unlike the Anabaptists, Lutherans concede that it may be wise and appropriate for Christians to get involved in state and government work as long as they don't confuse what the church is and what the gospel is with what the government does and what role and function it has. You guys doing okay? I feel like this is pretty heady, but are you, are you able to track with? Okay, all right. Then the view that now is sort of in the middle, and it doesn't quite, it, it doesn't perfectly fit there, but this is where people place it on the spectrum. Again, we have a spectrum here. It's what's called the black church view or the prophetic view. Now, unlike the other traditions we'll talk about tonight, the black church view is distinctly American. And not only that, but it also transcends denominational boundaries. In other words, this view isn't tied to a particular denomination, but rather it's rooted in the response of African-American Christians to their tumultuous and often tragic history. You see, for much of the American past, whites have sought to dominate all aspects of blacks' life, including their religious practice. The black church grew and developed in response to the oppression and racism they were experiencing. So you have to remember, they were often not allowed to worship with whites because of segregation and, and obviously slavery and other things. Therefore, some of these churches and denominations came into existence either in protest or really just because out of, out of desperation, out of seeking a place to worship freely. This tradition has a complex and perplexing relationship with politics. You see, on the one hand, they have been oppressed and discriminated against by the government and by laws passed through the government. But at the same time, there have been laws passed, uh, for example, like the civil rights laws, which have sought to overcome and protect against oppression and discrimination. And so again, it, this is why it's complex 
for them. And so there's a tension because they have seen the government do both good things, and they've also seen the government do some really horrible things which affect them. In other words, the black uh, church tradition is well aware of the potential benefits and yet frequent shortfalls of governmental action. So again, like some of the other views, the historical experiences of African Americans have indelibly shaped how they view the church and the state. And at the centerpiece of, of their view and of their tradition is the cross of Jesus. For them, the cross is a reminder that we must view suffering in light of the one who has faced the greatest suffering of all on our behalf, and who through that suffering freed us from the power of sin. With the harsh realities of life in mind, covered by the shadow of the cross, the black church emphasizes God's particular heart for the marginalized, the downcast, the lost, and the least of these. Recognizing the sin and suffering that permeates people and institutions around the world, this tradition often seeks, and this is important, I would say this is the, the key thing to understand with this view in terms of approaching politics. This tradition often uh, seeks to speak truth to power with a prophetic voice. You catch that? They're wanting to seek truth, uh, speak truth to power with a prophetic voice. You see, for the black church tradition, the prophets from the Old Testament really serve as a model for how to engage those with power, particularly how to engage those who are abusing their power. That's why you'll hear in a speech someone like Martin Luther King quote books you know, from like the book of Amos or other uh, prophets from the Old Testament. It may be said then that the goal of the black church in politics and all of life is the relentless pursuit of liberation, justice, and reconciliation. Within such a focus, there is a mixed view on the role of the state. Again, I've sort of already said this, but on the one hand, the black church emphasizes the positive and constructive role that government can play in serving justice, in seeking the good of all people, and in promoting reform and reconciliation. And yet, on the other hand, the black church is acutely aware that power can be a means of oppression. And that's not just a theory for them. That's because for most in this tradition, they've experienced such oppression in one form or another firsthand. These racial and cultural challenges have led the black church to tend to view the church and state not so much from an individual sense, but rather as a communal endeavor. The eternal, abundant life that God desires for all of his children is something that everyone must play a part in bringing about and realizing. So the church, therefore, must seek holistic justice as a community within the community and serve as a voice for peace. And so what that means is calling attention to institutional wrongdoing and systemic sins, especially evidence in racism. It means seeking the transformation of social and political institutions. And yet they would recognize that for corporate changes to be made to address corporate sins, there often must be structural adjustments. And that these structural adjustments often happen through legislative and political means. This is where the church acts as a voice for communal reform, calling on the state to do its, uh, its part in working for the betterment of all persons. You see what I mean when I talk about, when people talk about being a prophetic view? You're, you're, you're trying to speak truth to power and, and calling out oppression and calling out things that, uh, in ways that people aren't being treated uh, justly. And, and so that's sort of the main approach. In all things, the black church, though, places our ultimate hope in the eternal kingdom of God. And so, you know, it's realistic in terms of 
what will happen in this life. They're looking to that day when Christ returns, when things will be made right, when rough places were made smooth, and where peace and justice will ultimately reign. Now the fourth view, again, if we're moving down our spectrum, is the reformed view, or what some have called transformationist view. Now if I had to guess, this view is the one that is, the, that is held, uh, this view is the, the majority of white American evangelicals. This is sort of the view they hold whether they realize it or not. You could disagree, but this is, this is what I would argue. At the very least, we've been deeply shaped by it. Uh, historically, the Reformed Church tradition developed primarily from the 16th century Protestant uh, reformers, guys like Zwingli, Calvin, John Knox. This theological tradition emphasizes, uh, no surprise, God's supreme sovereignty over all things, including individual people, the church, and the state. In other words, they would say that nothing lies outside of God's sustaining providence, and nothing and nobody but God deserves to receive ultimate glory. Now, theologically, the thing that shapes their view of the church and government uh, is this biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And this narrative and their understanding of it, is, it shapes how they understand God's relationship to the world and to humanity. And so because of that, Reformed thinkers emphasize that God created the, the world very good. It was perfect. It was beautiful. Um, in that, in, in creation, God granted humans both the ability and the responsibility to fill the earth and multiply the good that God had placed in it. But then obviously, if you keep reading the Bible, you get to chapter 3 and you have the fall and things get really messed up. And in the fall, they would say that the uh, that you know the the human uh, humans bear the scars of that rebellion, and that 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 affects every part of life. Um, yeah, that goes into all areas of life, and they would be honest, and they would say that is true of politics as well. And I don't think I have to convince you that that's true of politics. Uh, I'm sure you understand that. However, though, they would go on to say that in God's great mercy, you know, this is sort of where the, uh, well, they would say in God's great mercy, sinners outside of Christ are empowered to do good things through what is called common grace. And common grace could be defined as an unmerited gift that enables wicked people to live rightly and receive earthly, though not eternal, blessings. In other words, common grace would say that non-Christians, because of God's mercy, uh, can and often do express many virtues and some truths. Now, with that, though, they'd be very quick to say that, that even with all of that, um, no uh, right standing in this life does not equate to right standing in the next. In other words, they're very uh, quick to make a difference between common grace and saving grace. Um, common grace, they would say, allows there to be institutions such as government, uh, which might act on behalf of the good of other persons. But that complete redemption and restoration are not possible in this life. And that only when Christ returns will those things be fully realized. However, though, I think that they would, that sort of their position is that we can, as fellow Christians, we can and we should work with institutions to bring about as much restoration from the fall as we can in this life. And so it's not a sort of a just sit back and let's just wait for Jesus to come back. It's no, let's, Christ has come. He's the king. 
let's begin to uh, bring about restoration to the earth. Hence the, the other name here, transformationist view. Um, they would argue that, uh, you know, if you, if you kind of think of the Anabaptist and Lutheran tradition, the reform view would, would argue that government is a good gift from God and is a means of, of good and transformation, just like other institutions like schools, churches, families, and businesses. They would say because God instituted government, obedience to government is an expression of obedience to God, and that the reverse of that is true as well. Uh, one reformed theologian said this, to despise human government is to despise the providence which set that government in place. Again, they would argue that Christians are called to engage the world in all its dimensions and to spread the transforming power of the gospel into each area of life and to let the light of Christ shine more and more brightly in society at large. So this is the kind of thing that, that in this view, they would really argue and urge Christians to infiltrate and influence all segments of society. Almost like considering yourself being a missionary to these different segments of society. You know, you might, have, you might say, you know, over here's the media. Let's, let's infiltrate that as Christians, as missionaries, and let's seek to bring about, you know, God's values and, and, and you know, bring about restoration to this side of of uh, life, or they might see that with, you know, education or academia or, again, politics. They would say, no, like, don't, don't withdraw from the process. You need to, to engage it and begin to try to, to influence there. Now, from this theological perspective, it follows that the church can advocate explicitly for beliefs and policies in the public realm with the recognition that success cannot be forced or guaranteed. Okay, so this is not a... Um, we're taking over everything and we will, you know, use violence to make people there. No, there's a recognition that, that you can, you can seek to influence, you can seek to persuade, but success cannot be forced or guaranteed. They would say followers of Jesus can and should love all people in all places while fully realizing that only the cross of Christ has the power to save. Government should promote justice and the common good but Christians should have tempered expectations of what government can and cannot do. And ultimately, we have to remember that our hope rests in Christ. And that's true of all five of these views. All five of these views would say, I'm not putting my hope in, in politics. You know, I'm not putting my hope in government. My hope's in Jesus. Now, apart from that, how should we engage? They might answer it differently. The last view I'm going to look at uh, tonight is the Catholic view or the synthetic view. Now, they don't mean synthetic in a fake sense, like, you know, synthetic rubber or something. No, they mean synthetic, synthetic in a synthesis sense. Now, the Catholic view is the oldest of these traditions, and it is at the opposite end of the spectrum from the Anabaptist view. The Catholic view centers on the unity and mission of the church with a particular emphasis on the incarnation and the sacraments. They would argue that God's Son, in taking on human uh, flesh, that, that in the incarnation, Jesus highlights the dignity of humanity. And that just as Christ came to the earth and lived among us, so God designed all people to live in deep communion with one another. And as part of that, they were to take responsibility for the needs of each other and for God's created world. Now, in terms of political engagement or really uh, any social engagement, the, the thing that undergirds uh, core elements of, of their theology is a document called Catholic Social Teaching, or CST. 
And what it is, is it's, it's a tradition which articulates fundamental principles for engagement with society, and they list seven themes as a result of that. And so I, I have the seven themes here. First is life and dignity of all human persons. Secondly, the call to family, community, and participation. Third, the rights and responsibilities. Four, preferential care for the poor and vulnerable. I don't know what number I'm on. Five, the dignity of work and the rights of workers. Six, solidarity. And then finally, care for God's creation. Now let me just try to summarize what all of those are, are basically getting at. Catholics would argue that humans are created in the image of God. Therefore, human life is sacred. And all people and all institutions should therefore protect human life and uphold human dignity, the human dignity that is inerrant in all persons. And so this really informs their view of abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty and, and, and really even uh, birth control. It all would flow from this point here. As well, they would argue that God created humanity to live and to flourish in community, beginning with the foundational relationships of marriage and family and extending outward to other forms of community. And so within our community, uh, they would say that there are rights and responsibilities. Right? Like, because we are part of this human community, we have rights and we have responsibilities to each other. And they would say that we should articulate uh, and indicate those in a direct way in which justice ought to govern life on earth. You see, like the black church and the Anabaptist church, uh, view, a, the Catholics would also put a special focus and a concern for the marginalized uh, and the poor, modeled after Christ's sacrificial love and care, again, for the least of these. They also focus on the dignity of work and the rights of workers and show how work gives meaning to life in a fallen world by upholding central ways of participating in creation. They would also argue for a humility that leads to solidarity. They would say, you know, we're all, you know, we're not all God's children, but we're all part of this thing called humanity. And therefore... We need to have humility towards each other that binds the members of communities together into a mutual commitment to the common good, each looking not at, uh, just to their own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then finally, the Catholic Church in, in this CST teaches that as, um, that as we are participators in the ongoing work of creation, we need to therefore care for creation. In other words, humans have a responsibility to be good stewards of the world that God has made. Now, Catholic political thought, it recognizes the essential uh, political and social nature of human life. It highlights the responsibility of the state to cultivate the common good. This tradition then upholds that, uh, what it sees as the God-given nature of governmental institutions, and it views the state through the lens of human flourishing, which has both individual and communal aspects to it. The logical outcome of such an approach is to encourage its, its uh, citizens and encourage its church members to participate in government as a means of furthering the betterment and blessings of all people. And so because of this, like actually in Catholic catechism, um, they would outline three specific obligations for Christian citizens. Um, vote, voting, defending one's country, and paying taxes. They would argue that that duty, though, to country, that it extends beyond national borders onto the entire world community with a special goal of promoting peace. 
Um, in recent years, the Catholic Church has been more vocal in expressing how the church and state should remain separate in order to protect religious freedom. And historically, um, they have seen many ways that the two can and should work together to achieve common goals. But again, like uh, the Lutheran tradition, they would say the fact remains that the church has a transcendent purpose that only she can fill. You see, even though the state does have a necessary and important role, it cannot meet all societal needs on its own. So uh, Catholic political tradition holds to what is called the principle of subsidiary. I don't know if I said that right. What it means is that they would say that matters are best handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. So it is arguing for a more smaller government model. With that, they would say political decisions should be made at a local level if possible, rather than by a central authority, which is a little ironic given that they have a pope and the, you know, Rome and all of that. But when it comes to government, it's different. Um, they would also argue that churches, families, and community groups are best equipped to perform their respective roles and meet local societal needs. And this is really important. This is why you see so many Catholic organizations in you know, cities around uh, the world and around America. And it's also why um, they, they have such a good reputation that they do often get a lot of grants and funds from the government to do some of this work because you know, for one, they're, they're not flaky like a lot of evangelical groups who get very passionate about, you know, some cause and then are gone in 10 years, right? Like, like they have a long track record of, of being there, of being responsible with funds, and of meeting the needs in a community. Um, so again, the Catholic view would say that politics by definition is about the good of people and that since God cares about all people, Christians who seek to follow God must care about politics. And so again, this is a much more positive and integrated view than all the others. Good? All right, we're done. I'm just going to conclude here with a couple thoughts. All right, so maybe you're thinking, why why'd we talk about all that? Because Chris asked me to share on it. Um, no. Uh, no, as we conclude here, I want to I think, uh, I think part of what you and I need to take away from all of this is this. First off, we need to let this create a humility in us as we think about the church and as we think about politics. I mean, these are five historic, uh, five different historic views, all of which have been thought out, defended, and have scriptural support to back them up. They are all put forward by people who love God and who love others, and yet they look very, very different. And because of that, I think you and I, we need to approach this with a lot of humility. I don't think that that means that you can't or that you shouldn't develop a personal conviction on this or that you can't disagree with other views. But what I do think it should at least cause you and cause me to, to do is to be careful about how we speak of other groups and other views and traditions. Right? Like this is pretty complex. There's a lot of history and, and ways that people have been treated and, 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 and again, influences that, that go into all of these. And, and, in, and in light of that, the other thing I think is a takeaway from all of this, and I said this at the beginning, but I think you and I, we have to keep in mind that we all have been shaped and influenced by a variety of factors. Our history, our location. I was just talking with, uh, with Louise Martin. I think I can say your name and not throw you under the bus. But um, we were just talking about how even like regionally you're affected, right? Like she grew up in California. I've lived in Ohio my whole life, 
like we're affected by that, right? And that, that affects our view of, of politics, whether we realize it or not. And so, uh, again, I think we have to, to be honest about that. Again, what we've read, who we've influenced, you know, the guy who discipled you or the girl who discipled you probably had a big influence in how you think about some of these things. The Sunday school teacher you had when you were seven is, is, is influencing you whether you realize it or not. I may be exaggerating. I don't know. But what I want to say is that for some of you older and brother, uh, brothers and sisters in here, um, if, if you don't think that you've been shaped by guys like Jerry Falwell or James Dobson in terms of how you view politics, then I think you might be kidding yourself. And for those of us who are younger, if we don't think that we've been shaped by social media and other voices out there, then we're kidding ourselves. And I think that because of these, these factors are important for us to remember, and they should impact how we view, how we treat each other, and how we discuss things. And particularly when we discuss things with people that we disagree with. Okay, I'm done. Um, all right, as I said at the beginning, I am by no means an expert on this topic, and so keep that in mind. So we'll, we're, instead of question and answer, we're going to call this question and response. So Q and R. Does anybody have any questions? I, I don't really want any comments because I, I don't, you know, unless you, you can push back, but um, yeah, any questions or things that I can clarify? Whose side are you on? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the Anabaptist view is pretty attractive. Um, yeah, Bob. I think so. I mean, obviously the Lutheran view, and even the guy in the chapter, he is wrestling with the Lutheran church has undergone a lot of changes, you know. There's, there's you know, liberal Protestantism really influenced it, and, and so it, it, I would say that there are still people within the, at least the Lutheran church that are still trying to hold on. And that, my understanding is that they were really shaped by Niebuhr. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, there are two brothers, right, Richard and Reinhold? Yes. Um, so yeah, I would say in general, these are still in play. Um, again, there's a lot of people I think are influenced by the reform view without realizing it. It's sort of, and, and I don't even, I think we get hung up on the word reformed. I don't, I don't think you need to get hung up on that. I mean, I, my understanding is that's sort of the way that like Falwell and Dobson and some of those other guys in the moral majority, that was sort of their take on, on it. Um, but yeah, certainly all the others are still very much, um, Alive and well. I don't know as much about the black church. Um, I don't know if it's moved to being more political or less. I, I don't feel qualified to, to speak on that. But well, uh, is a, uh, uh, an author named Ross Dalbat who's very good on this thing. He's a New York Times uh, uh, journalist. He wrote that in the 50s and 60s was actually the apex of Catholic, the Catholic view in terms of the government and also the mainline churches. Mainline churches and Catholicism were pretty close in the 50s and into the 60s was like an apex of the integration of their of their vision. Hmm. If you were 50s and a Catholic, for example, just watch the movies in the 50s. You will see, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a few, um, but you'll see the amazing influence of the Catholic Church on Hollywood during the 50s. But obviously, 60s, anti-establishment, that all began to yeah. unravel. unravel. That was an apex for that, that era. Yeah, Rhonda? This is maybe just a corollary to what, how you started, but it struck me as you went through it that 
they would disagree with each other very little on their um, the, their core beliefs. Yeah. It just seems to be the way they apply them or the, the direction it pushes them. I mean, it just seemed like, yeah, I think it sounds like they would agree on, you know, maybe with the Anabaptist get out. Yeah, yeah. Far as true, but it just struck me that we all, you know, believers love the Lord and love each other. And yeah, so yeah. It's just what, what, what maybe your time or whatever, where it's, where it's. No, I think you're right. And I, I think that, and that makes sense because we're all seeking to follow the same Lord and we're reading the same book. And, um, and yeah, there, there, and, and I think there are a lot of common things that unite some of those views. Again, as I said before, the, the biggest thing being none of these views are putting their hope in, you know, government and world domination, you know. That, my understanding is there is maybe another view that's a little more extreme called dominionism. Is that right, Chris? Um, and probably that's a little bit the reform view going off the rails, I would, I would think. Um, you know, and, and one thing Chris and I were talking about is your eschatology really does affect some of this, right? Like you think of Jonathan Edwards and some of those early uh, Puritans who came over to America. I mean, they, they thought like they were all post-millennials. Uh, and they thought the world was just going to progressively get more and more Christian and that Christ would return at the end. And, and so that really influenced um, their sort of view of politics as well. Um, so again, that's, that's what I mean. All, when you were born, where you were born, all of that really impacts you, which should create a humility in us. Um, I'm over my time. Hey, so. Yeah, we can take one or two, some more questions. All right, so it's 7.57. Right. What time do you want us back, Chris? 8.02, I'm going to start. I'm going to start okay. here. All right. You better run to the bathroom.